Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. <laughs> hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. I am thrilled to welcome you to the penultimate episode of our December Dickens 2021 series on none other than The Battle of Life by Charles Dickens. And a reminder that we chose our content for our fourth December Dickens series with care not to show favor to one religious tradition over another, but to review great literature as just that. Without further ado, The Battle of Life. Review of the Plot the Battle of Life is certainly the least well-known Christmas novel of the five that Dickens wrote, and of course of the five that we will review on our series together. It is also the most philosophical or obscure in terms of how it is written. That is, it begins with a broad scope of vague introduction about an old battlefield, then zooms in in a sight of two sisters, Marion and Grace, who seem to be in love with the same man. In chapter one, part the first, again, there's this enigmatic introduction. It's so vague and zoomed out. It talks about this battle that happened such a long time ago that the grass has grown over all the blood, but there's still this superstitious quality about the place, almost like you can feel what has happened there, even when people have lost the knowledge that something has happened there. And there's this sense that even the trees and the animals know what's going on after this battle has taken place so many years ago. This beginning part is quite like the tale of two cities. It's almost like a historical overview of something that has happened in the past, and a lot of the drier description is very much like the tale of two cities, especially in the beginning, but also very much like a lot of Russian literature, like Anna Karenina, something Tolstoy would write. There's just a lot of words to describe this historical event in the past. I read from page two. Nowhere more altered, perhaps, about a hundred years ago than in one little orchard attached to an old stone house with a honeysuckle porch, where on a bright autumn morning there were sounds of music and laughter, and where two girls danced merrily together on the grass, while some half-dozen peasant women, standing on ladders, gathering the apples from the trees, stopped in their work to look down and share their enjoyment. It was a pleasant, lively, natural scene, a beautiful day, a retired spot. And the two girls, quite unconstrained and careless, danced in the freedom and gaiety of their hearts." Unquote. So this is, of course, after this battle has taken place and people have forgotten it such to an extent that we have this amazing, bright scene where these girls, Marion and Grace, we will later learn, are dancing about, and these servants are picking apples. As the first part continues, we also hint on some characteristic characterization for Dickens, which focuses especially on a servant named Clemency or Clem, and in true Dickensian fashion as well, when Clem comes back, the narrator relies on the following characterization for the reader to identify her without the narrator immediately revealing it to the reader. On page six, quote, 
To say that she had two left legs and somebody else's arms, and that all four limbs seemed to be out of joint, and to start from perfectly wrong places when they were set in motion, is to offer the mildest outline of the reality. To say that she was perfectly content and satisfied with these arrangements and regarded them as being no business of hers, and that she took her arms and legs as they came and allowed them to dispose of themselves just as it happened, is to render faint justice to her equanimity. Her dress was a prodigious pair of self-willed shoes that never wanted to go where her feet went, blue stockings, a printed gown of many colors, and the most hideous pattern procurable for money, and a white apron. She always wore short sleeves and always had, by some accident, grazed elbows in which she took so lively an interest that she was continually trying to turn them round and get impossible views of them." Unquote. And we get this interesting sense that she's this mismatched character that somehow ends up procuring quite a bit of grace as she goes along. And I love this characterization so early in the short story of Clemency. She becomes so recognizable, as I mentioned, when she comes back after a bunch of time passes. There's also another servant named Britton who's introduced at this point. Kind of a curmudgeon pragmatic kind of person. Also, he comes back in a different sort of situation, a different light. We learn that this scene with the apple picking, the scene where Clemency is first described, is Dr. Jedler and his daughters, Grace and Marion, are celebrating Marion's birthday. And also there's this young man named Alfred who is supposedly betrothed to Marion, at least at some point in the future, two, three years hence. And the lawyers who arrive in this scene along with all of the servants, the daughters, Dr. Jedler, gather in this festivus occasion in order to give Alfred a trust fund with which he's supposed to go out and make a great man of himself and come back when he's successful and marry Marion. And Alfred does end up procuring this trust fund from the lawyers with Dr. Judler's approval, making a good betrothal for his daughter essentially, and Alfred leaves from this gathering to do just that. There's this sad parting, but again, these supple promises that he will marry Marion and they will take on Grace together as their charge and they will have a joyous life altogether. Now, both these first and second parts, these chapters, end on cliffhangers, which was also quite typical for Dickens, as when he would write serial works, which included all of his major novels, he would rarely work ahead of schedule to the extent that he would actually write week to week. <laughs> it's a technique that subsequent writers like Arl Stein and many other mystery writers, for example, have adopted. And I'm not saying that Arl Stein at all work week to week, but they do incorporate cliffhangers at the end of every section or chapter, in Dickens' case, every serial, in order to keep readers coming back, even if it's a long period of time before their next publishing date. In chapter two, part second, we come in on these lawyers' offices. These lawyers are called Snitchy and Crags, and they have such an amazing 
dual kind of personality. They're very dependent on each other. They're best friends, and hilariously, their wives are each suspicious of the other partner. So Snitchy's wife is suspicious of Craig's, and Craig's wife is suspicious of Snitchy, a characteristic bout of Dickensian humor. We are on the scene three years after this first scene with the apples, and we're looking over the affairs of a one Michael Warden from Esquire. On page 17, here days and weeks and months and years passed over them. Their calendar, the gradually diminishing number of brass nails in the leathern chairs, and the increasing bulk of papers on the tables. Here, nearly three years' flight had thinned the one and swelled the other since the breakfast in the orchard when they sat together in consultation at night." Unquote. So this is such an interesting way to show the passing of time, where it's very vague and then all of a sudden the pieces click together. Here, days and weeks and months and years passed over them. <laughs> so it's not like Dickens is saying, three years later, colon, let's move on. <laughs> He's really building it up in a way that he hasn't necessarily done in the previous Christmas novels. And it's so similar. It's such a parallel to the enigmatic introduction that we had, and indeed the introduction in The Cricket on the Hearth as well. That's the most similar short story or short Christmas novel to this one. And again, it just shows the passing of time in such an unintuitive way, and it's such a delight to read and to be surprised at how Dickens builds this kind of suspense until you finally figure out what the even narrow picture of just three years later looks like to Dickens. As they start to discuss the lawyers and warden, as they start to discuss warden's affairs together, the picture starts to look quite bleak. Finally, they find out that warden is in love with Dr. Jedler's daughter, Marion, the one who's been betrothed to Alfred this whole time, and Alfred is supposedly coming back soon, and warden was a lodger with the Jedler family for a while, and that's how he came to fall in love with her. He kind of realized how unhappy she was with this engagement, how much she avoided it in conversation, for example. And there's this quite present dilemma that I think speaks to a lot of the social issues that would have come up in Dickens' time as, you know, someone reading in the 1850s, which is around when this short novella was published, which is that Warden is broke and Marion's engaged to another man with pretty good prospects, right? He has this whole trust fund from Dr. Jedler and is supposedly using it to best use and won't come back until he's quite successful, successful enough indeed to marry Marion. So there's this kind of <laughs> age-old scenario that Dickens sets up that was especially relevant to the time, right? And very gendered as well. Warden introduces a plan to these lawyers, which is that he plans with essentially her blessing to leave in a month with Marion, if she will agree to it. There's a quick swift scene change here, where we go back to the home of the doctor. Again, this is three years later, so it's a similarly domestically peaceful scene as the first meeting with the apples, but there's this twinge of suspense that's going on, and suspense is 
best divined, I think, by Malcolm Gladwell when he says it's the author or the writer playing with the reader's expectations around time. And so we think that, I thought at least as a reader, that things were going to move a little bit more forward here, but really it moves much more slower with regard to Marion's discomfort and how she shows that than I anticipated. There's a letter home when they're in the fire, they're in the, in the living room with a fire, all reading together, and the letter is of course from Alfred saying that he will return this day month, unquote, which is the same day, interestingly, that Warden plans to leave with Marion if he can. News of the letter, of course, passes around the servant quarters. We get Britain's opinion, he's quite happy about this, and he and Clem talk about the prospects of if they will ever marry one day, and I think that the way that Dickens sets not only the scene with Alfred coming back, but the scene with the servants later, how he sets that all up, is so masterful. There's so much foreshadowing here, and you don't necessarily know at the time as the reader what it's all foreshadowing, <laughs> because it seems quite out of place, at least to me, that suddenly he would switch to these servants in the other room, kind of listening in on the family, which I know was a common scene at that time again. I think it's very Downton Abbey-esque, if you've ever seen that series. But at the same time, we haven't really gotten a window into these servants other than their characterization. We don't know what's going to happen to them in the future, or indeed if we'll even see them again in this short story. We're 20 pages or 30 pages in already. That night, Warden comes from the lawyer's office, presumably, and Marion trusts her peace, essentially, to, or her secret, to Clem, because, of course, it's not proper for a young lady who's betrothed, or engaged, rather, to be speaking with another young man who does not live there anymore, he's not a lodger anymore, uh, in the middle of the night, alone, mind you on page 29. We've got a description of the wedding that starts to happen right after this conversation in the middle of the night. So again, the pacing is kind of all over the place here. There's this long, intermatic, enigmatic introduction, but at the same time, there are these quick shifts between scenes that I found quite interesting and quite engaging when I was reading. Page 29. So guests were bidden, and musicians were engaged, and tables spread, and floors prepared for active feet, and bountiful provision made of every hospitable kind. Because it was the Christmas season, and his eyes were all unused to English holly and its sturdy green, the dancing room was garlanded and hung with it, and the red berries gleamed an English welcome to him, peeping from among the leaves." Unquote. I love this description here, right in... The middle of this short after this again but kind of abrupt sequence change or scene change and it's quite odd it, it really speaks to dickens's mastery at being able to see things from different light i almost think of walt whitman's ability to do the same thing almost to distance himself from things and to see things not objectively but from a completely different perspective and to be able to communicate that so clearly and so sparsely Dickens's prose, of course, is nothing, anything but sparse, um, but 
he does make this notable perspective shift. So first of all, we start off the sentence, so guests were bidden and musicians were engaged and the tables spread and floors prepared for active feet. And on and on. That's all in the passive tense. And so where it's interesting because it's all kind of from this distance. It's almost like he's setting this event up from failure. The narrator does not care who is taking an active part in preparing these guests and musicians and tables and floors and etc. Whereas in other parts of the short story, for example, the apple orchard, it was very much in present tense, active kind of language where everything was more immediate, we were following the people who were actually engaged in the tasks and of course those scenes were had this pacing that propelled the plot forward. So this is having this kind of passive tense, distance, removal from the action here doesn't bode well for the scene. Because it was the Christmas season and his eyes were all unused to English holly and its sturdy green, the dancing room was garlanded and hung with it, and the red berries gleamed an English welcome to him peeping from among the leaves. I believe this is talking about Dr. Jedler. He is Dr. Jedler preparing for this whole event. Uh, here we have the Christmas season. So, of course, Christmas novel, there's got to be some sort of mention of Christmas. And indeed, much like the other Christmas novels, excepting, of course, the first one, <laughs> aptly named, right, the A Christmas Carol. <laughs> really, this has not much to do with Christmas, other than the spirit of it, the thematic content, for example. There's a lot of happy endings that seem to be con consistent or constant in these. Uh, there's a bit of symbolism, a couple points here and there, right? The English holly and its sturdy green and dancing and lights and lots of feasting going on. And of course, that's not common only to Christmas, right? This is a wedding. So there seemed to be this paralleling for Dickens of Christmas and other festivities like weddings, like marriages. That was a huge proponent of a cricket on the hearth, for example. So we're at this wedding and they're, they are celebrating, celebrating. There's a bunch of guests. It's quite warm. The fires are continuing to blaze at Dr. Jedler's command, who is the most excited for this wedding, I should add. Crags and Snitchy are there and they're on the lookout essentially for something to happen because they know of Michael Warden's plan. And Clem also has some inkling, right, of Michael Warden's plan because he came to visit Marion on that one winter evening. I love the humor, the little moments of humor in this, and that's common to all of the Christmas shorts, and I've mentioned it in episodes of all of them. Humor here specifically in how the wives of Snitchy and Crags talk about each other, or each other's husbands rather, behind their backs. I think that's so hilarious. They know that the other partner is across the room and yet they still end up, you know, jibing with their husbands about their respective business partner. And of course these two men are so close-knit, it's almost like they're in a relationship of their own and they are in many ways. So there's a tumult in the house all of a sudden and we know eventually that this tumult is caused by Marion going missing. 
Alfred returns, conveniently, just at this moment. On page 35, the snow fell fast and thick. He looked up for a moment in the air and thought that those white ashes strewn upon his hopes and misery were suited to them well. He looked round on the whitening ground and thought how Marion's footprints would be hushed and covered up as soon as made, and even that remembrance of her blotted out. But he never felt the weather, and he was never stirred. Unquote. So this passage I love because there's this great increase in pacing near the end of this chapter, near the end of this part, in kind of this hushed silence that falls over the party, right? There's this great, there are these great moments of energy, this great buildup of energy, actually, because they're starting to be a lull in the party. The fires are starting to dim a bit, and Dr. Jedler says, no, Alfred has not arrived yet. We need to turn up the notch to 11, <laughs> if you know that reference. And so the energy increases, and all of a sudden, there's this big kabang, where, of course, we learn later, Marion goes missing, Alfred arrives at this moment, and then there's this hushed silence and this profound feeling of grief from Alfred as he realizes that his bride, after all of his work, etc., and hopes, you know, it seems like he really was hoping to love her and marry her in the way that they had planned, but alas. Chapter 3, Part the Third. We pass time again. We have six years since the night of the return, and I like the parallelism with how Dickens writes this passage with the beginning. I'm reading from page 35 of the short. These are all linked at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the show notes for this episode, by the way. There's some great online versions in this Dickens online library that I have been reading from, and my page numbers match those. Quote, the world had grown six years older since that night of the return. It was a warm autumn afternoon, and there had been heavy rain. The sun burst suddenly from among the clouds, and the old battleground, sparkling brilliantly and cheerfully at the sight of its one green place, flashed a responsive welcome there, which spread along the countryside as if a joyful beacon had been lighted up and answered from a thousand stations. How beautiful the landscape kindling in the light and that luxuriant influence passing on like a celestial presence, brightening everything. The wood, a somber mass before, revealed its varied tints of yellow, green, brown, red, its different forms of trees with raindrops glittering on their leaves and twinkling as they fell. The verdant meadowland, bright and glowing, seemed as if it had been a blind and minute silence, and now had found a sense of sight wherewith to look up at the shining sky. Cornfields, hedgerows, fences, homesteads, and clustered roofs, the steeple of the church, the stream, the water mill, all sprang out from the gloomy darkness, smiling." Unquote. First of all, how beautiful, how lush. Is this description it reminds me so much of the beginning because it's spring again this long winter seemingly of at least that winter that christmas season where marion goes missing but also the long winter of six years has passed we learn that marion has quote-unquote been missing for six years after that event of her wedding and we come in on this beautiful scene almost again like the battlefield has 
it's been so long since this battle has taken place, since this traumatic event for Alfred, for Grace, of course, for Dr. Jedler and the rest of their family, including the servants, since this event has taken place that they're starting to finally come to peace and starting to finally move on and starting finally to enjoy this beautiful spring again. The spring is able to come back that much more and not only come back, but also be appreciated by this omniscient narrator in the way that it was in the beginning. I find that interesting. So we come in on the Nutmeg Greater Inn, and there's this joke up in the beginning part, in the Apple Orchard part, another parallelism to this third part here, um, about this Nutmeg Greater and about Clem learning to, sm to, learning to spell, not learning to smell, learning to spell and using the Nutmeg Greater as a essentially a learning tool for that. Turns out Britton, whose name is Benjamin, or Ben, um, who's also a composer, Benjamin Britton, um, Ben ended up marrying Clemency, and the story comes after a point in the plot that's sort of this interesting, it's interesting and of course convenient that this comes up at this time, right, as we're entering and on the scene six years later. So Clem brings back this bill from essentially her errands that says that Warden, Michael Warden that is, will continue to live abroad. Uh, and Warden, this whole affair with, in the middle of the night, Michael Warden coming and talking to Marion, which of course led to their escaping together, lost Clem her place at the household. So she was fired subsequent to that event. And it gave Britain the idea to marry her essentially to rescue her from this position. They ended up working super well together, opening this quite successful inn. As they're discussing this bill and this, these kind of series of events that started to unfold, right, as a result of that whole affair, this stranger comes into the inn. We already know who it is, okay? Stranger comes into the inn. He looks at the bill with Michael Warden's information on it and asks, Clem and Britain to tell him the entire story of the last six years since Marion has gone missing. He wants to supposedly know about the Jedlers and what's going on there. So the story is Alfred and Grace get married. No surprises there. Grace and Alfred have more chemistry from the beginning and they end up getting married in sort of out of this mutual grief is how I interpret it from the text, but also, I think from a mutual closeness and a mutual familiarity with one another, he's also quite familiar with Dr. Jedler's family and circumstances, etc. And he had this whole trust fund priming situation going on with Marion, so it would make the most logical sense, especially for that time, that he would end up marrying Grace. The stranger ends up, of course, being Michael Warden and he's wearing all black, he's kind of morose, he's come back from abroad, and the immediate conclusion that Clem comes to when, he see when she sees all this is that Marion is dead, and that Michael is in mourning and has come back to tell her family. We get this image of Snitchy arriving at the inn all of a sudden and very conveniently again, uh, this is such a Dickensian ending, by the way, how all these pieces are starting to tie up very quickly together. 
I'm not sure if it's my own tendency to read endings quite fast or if it was the actual pacing and the actual style of how Dickens wanted to write this, but things start to move rather quickly. There's, it's a very information-dense section here. Snitchy arrives at the end and we hear that Crags is dead as well. So Snitchy has this kind of existential crisis that's continuously going on since Crags has died. Big surprise, we learn that Marion is not dead. She never married Michael Warden. They just lived as companions, essentially. Uh, and really, it was just so that Alfred would marry Grace because she didn't want to marry Alfred. She knew that Grace wanted to marry Alfred, so she left. She removed herself from this entire situation, essentially brought upon enmity to herself in order to give her sister the greatest chance of happiness. Grace, of course, was no mother in this family situation, so Grace was really her mother figure growing up and took care of her as a mother would, so this was... it's postured somewhat as a thank you for that whole upbringing. In the end, and this comes to the greater thematic content of the Christmas season and the joyous season, there's a sense that nothing is unforgivable. On page 49, quote, You would not be the better pleased with my rude pen if it dissected and laid open to your view the transcripts of this family, the transports of this family long severed and now reunited. Therefore, I will not follow the poor doctor through his humbled recollection of the sorrow he had had when Marion was lost to him. Nor will I tell you how serious he had found that world to be, in which some love, deep anchored, is the portion of all human creatures, nor how such a trifle as the absence of one little unit in the great absurd account had stricken him to the ground, nor how, in comparison for his distress, his sister had long ago revealed the truth to him by slow degrees, and brought him to the knowledge of the heart of his self-banished daughter, and to that daughter's side." Unquote. So again, it's this kind of removed, distant kind of passage that, instead of showing forebodings, right, this foreboding scene at the wedding, shows this kind of grandiose quality that the narrator is suddenly taking on, or really has taken on for a lot of this short, and has for the other shorts as well. I think of even The Chimes as a great example of that, with this ambiguous beginning that's kind of like the introduction. We talked about Beethoven's Fourth Symphony in that regard, and how they both have this kind of loose ambiguity in the beginning that starts to narrow in. And then there's this grandiosity at the end when finally his daughter gets married and is happy and etc. And I'll have one last quote for you, page 51, time. From whom I had the latter portion of this story and with whom I have the pleasure of a personal acquaintance of some five and thirty years duration, informed me, leaning easily upon his scythe, that Michael Warden never went away again, and never sold his house, but opened it afresh, maintained a golden means of hospitality, and had a wife, the pride and honor of that countryside, whose name was Marion. But, as I have observed, that time confuses facts occasionally. I hardly know what weight to give to his authority." Unquote. I love that ending. It's so, it's so 
it's crazy, first of all, <laughs> with bringing in this figure of time and, you know, that's the one mystical, magical realism kind of element in this short. This novella is so different from the others in the respect that it doesn't really have one of those magical, like, extra real elements, except for this little paragraph at the end that ends the short story, or ends the novella, with time all of a sudden, and his scythe almost seems like death coming at the end, or what's the difference really between them? And giving us this half a sentence snippet here, I mean Dickens, Dickensian sentences are quite long, but he gives us this half a sentence, little snippet about Michael Warden coming back and then being re-honored and re-accepted into the family and finally marrying once they have essentially the right permissions and the right occasion to do so. And the time jumps I found just so interesting in this short story as well. And to really look at those time jumps and those abrupt <laughs> kind of stoppages in the middle of the story in the context of this last bit with the time figure coming in at the end is really interesting. It's almost like an intentional move to structure the short novella like it's being told, like the entire novella is being told from the perspective of time, who clearly has quite a different idea of how things pass in the sequence of things than we do normally. So maybe that is the one extra real element of this short novella, which is that there's this overarching sense of time being a overarching and all-powerful figure over the narration of the story. Compared to the other Christmas novellas, and I'll end with this, again, there's not as many mystical elements as the others, except for perhaps this time element, and except, like the others, perhaps except uh, Christmas Carol. There's not much to do with Christmas, really. Like, the, the novel ends and begins in spring, and so there's, again, this sense that thematic content is driving a lot of this, right? Love and joy and forgiveness especially. Um, renewal is a big one and I think spring really captures this sense of renewal and regeneration, reframing that Dickens is trying to get at. But what's interesting is that Christmas in this short novella happens in the most bleakest part of the story. <laughs> so if he really wanted to connect Christmas with, you know, the, the other thematic content, like renewal or joy, for example, he would maybe put that on the other ends of the story, which I find, again, so fascinating. And right, the reason why these are Christmas novels are because they, is because they were published during the Christmas season of each of these years. This novella was published in the Christmas season of 1846, so right, he's relying on this thematic content and perhaps it was uplifting to people to look towards spring in this way during the Christmas season, but for future readers, I find that interesting how Dickens maybe didn't look at or think about, or maybe he did, who knows, <laughs> but maybe he didn't look at or think about how the novellas would read in for example, January, February, as we're reviewing these last two. And lastly, what I enjoyed about this particular 
novella and something that I also quite enjoyed about Bleak House and David Copperfield to an extent and Great Expectations to an extent as well. Uh, Great Expectations more so than David Copperfield for sure is that there's this focus on a wider variety or a wider scope of characters. Also like the chimes from our third episode of this series and the chimes had, you know, Tilly Slowboy and all of these different characters milling about that we got to interact with and I found that to be one of my favorite things about Dickens is to observe how he so masterfully ties everything together not only at the end of the piece, whatever length that is, but at in the midpoints and how he balances the cast of characters, how much time each of them get, for example, but also knowing that there's sort of a hierarchy of characters anyway, with Marion and Michael Warden sort of being at the top, but maybe not time-wise, interestingly, and sort of like these huge asides with the servants or Snitchy and Crags and how he ends up measuring their importance and their ability to drive the plot with how much time they're given in the short story. That is all for this episode. I thank you so much for hanging in as we finish this series a bit late, not in December but in January, and I hope you quite enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed coming back to the series and coming back to podcasting after my hiatus, and I will see you next week with the last December Dickens episode. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.